we're going to see, I think, a very benign environment. I think even if Lula or Bolsonaro wins, it's not really, I think, the big issue. It's the continuity of this process of the reforms, etc. There is nuances, of course, as we talked here, but I think the overall uh, interest rate should fall and the real should get stronger under both uh, governments. Hello, and welcome to the Parkview podcast. I'm Paul Hunk, investment analyst at Parkview, and joining me is Osama Himani, CIO at the firm. In this week's episode, Osama sits down with Marcelo Mesquita to discuss all things Brazil and Brazilian equities. Marcelo has more than 30 years' experience as an analyst, banker, and board member in the region. He is a founding partner and PM at Leblon Equities, an asset management firm focused on Brazilian public and private equity. Prior to this, he headed up research teams at UBS Pactual and Banco Garantia. Well, Marcelo, it's always a pleasure to hear your views. I mean, for the past 20 years, I think each time I've visited Brazil, I've always enjoyed coming to your office and hearing your thoughts about the Brazilian equity market. Let me start a bit by the political landscape. I've been here for a couple of weeks. Brazil is a couple of months ahead of an important election. And one thing that really struck me is how polarized opinions are regarding the potential outcome. If you think about it, Brazil hasn't done too badly during COVID in the last few years. Brazil's economy shrank less than many other emerging markets, recovered faster. The concerns about debt buildup during COVID were misplaced. The country's running admirable fiscal policy, primary surpluses. Why are opinions so polarized and what's wrong? I think that polarization is not particularly only to Brazil. I think if you look the US, you look Europe, you look the UK, you look many democracies, uh, Western democracies, the we are in a new world of uh, social media and all that, the decline of the normal media, the, the fake news and all this sort of uh, different uh, ways for people to get information. And even the, 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 the poorer people that were out uh, of the, let's say, the, the this sharing of information, uh, now everybody has a mobile phone. In Brazil, you have like more mobile phones than inhabitants. <laughs> so, in Brazil, is like one of the foremost... Uh, uh, digitalized countries uh, in the world like uh, so I think that uh, <coughs> all that helps this polarization because um, and of course um, you have a specific in Brazil <coughs> this issue of Lula which was arrested and, and, and uh, with clear uh, big corruption and, and Dilma Rousseff impeachment which was the worst uh, economic crisis in Brazilian history. So there is a, a lot of polarization because of this on one side. And on the other side, Bolsonaro is a guy that uh, embraces a lot of the, uh, like, uh, guns and uh, um, the church, the use of religion about uh, with mixed with politics. And um, he is not uh, uh, cautious about the way uh, he treats like uh, the wife of Macron and the virus coming from China. I mean, everything uh, he could do to hurt himself on the external front, he did. So the image that Bolsonaro has with the young people, with the women, 
with the LGBT, with the foreign countries, is very bad because on the social issues, um, he likes to polarize a bit. Maybe it happens in the US with the Republicans and the Democrats and a lot of these subjects like abortion now in the US, etc. But on the economic front, uh, I think the country has been building over the years a, a bit of a consensus of what has to be done. People know what has to be done. I don't think there is so much polarization on the economic themes. The, the polarization in Brazil is more on these other themes like the guns and, and the religion and like the Amazon. I mean, even though uh, I don't think uh, Bolsonaro wants to destroy the Amazon, but the media paints as if he's not protecting and he's helping to destroy. So there is all this uh, social media fight uh, that's not helpful to, to unite people, etc. That's why there is so much polarization, I think. Uh, but in the end, as you were mentioning, I mean, uh, COVID was, uh, Brazil was going to grow around 4% before COVID. We were privatizing um, the, the generating fiscal surplus. Uh, I mean, all the, the economic policies, the, the many reforms were being implemented. And then there was COVID, which was like a, a comet that hit the planet and... and and it was very hard for two years. A lot of social inequality increased. The poorer people were the ones that suffered the most, that could not really work from home and use Zoom, etc. So that was a, a, a stop, let's say, of two years in, in this process of improvement of the economy that we were seeing. And, and that's why I think it's, uh, it has been hard to forecast the elections. I, I think if we, if we did not have the, the COVID, I think Bolsonaro would win easily this election. <laughs> I, I'm not a, a, a voter on him on the first round. <laughs> uh, I would prefer a third way, a third type of candidate, not Lula or Bolsonaro, but I recognize the economic policies that uh, have been implemented in Bolsonaro years with Paulo Guedes. Paulo Guedes is really a liberal and trying to implement the correct agenda, even though maybe Bolsonaro does not agree or does not understand, but he, in the end, supports Guedes, and that's what's important. So I think one of the main risks, maybe you're going to ask this after, but uh, uh, on the Bolsonaro re-election scenario, is how strong Paulo Guedes will always be. That's always the main risk of on the Bolsonaro government, has been the power of Paulo Guedes, if he remains, if he's fed up or not, if he will continue to uh, have energy enough to keep supporting the, the, the agenda of reforms, of privatization, of tax reform, integration of Brazil with the world, with the uh, trade agreements, etc. And, uh, and under Lula, the, the risk is a bit the same. Is who is going to be his finance minister? To whom he's going to give the, the, the macro policies? And uh, if he gives to people like Meirelles and Marcos Lisboa, or these like uh, normal economists, we might have a very uh, interesting scenario. I mean, the, the polarization will remain in the country, but uh, the macro agenda will continue. So. I think uh, there was a, a big lesson over the last few years and also through COVID that like these policies of direct income uh, 
of giving money to the poor people is very effective to reduce poverty and to make the, the, the social difference uh, reduce because the money really reaches the people that need the money. And uh, instead of giving a lot of uh, rights and a lot of services, state-owned services, but giving money and reducing the size of the state is a very effective way. And I think that's a, a consensus within the liberals and within the more left-wing people in Brazil. Uh, and, um, and that's very good because, uh, I, I mean, the privatization of Eletrobras, the privatization of the, of the roads, of the ports, of the railways, I mean, there was a lot of uh, uh, pent-up demand for capex in many uh, very important sectors of the economy in Brazil that are now unleashed with this program. Uh, the tax reform that started uh, last by reducing ICMS on fuel. And uh, one of the reasons Brazil is not very competitive is because of the tax system. Because uh, almost all products in Brazil have almost uh, twice the price they would have if there was no taxes on, on consumption and on production. Uh, and, and we have to, we must move that to more in, uh, taxes on income and less taxes on products. And, and that goes to that issue we are talking about, the so, very yeah. sophisticated and, and, and uh, industrial facilities and, and, and production. But in the end, we are not competitive to export or not competitive against the imports because of taxes. So you, you said something very important now. You said that actually the polarization, I understand mm -hmm. it is over social issues, but it is less over... Um, uh, uh, questions of economic policy. Yeah, of now, course, the Lula, Lula, more, prefer more state-owned companies. Sure. And the uh, Gaddis guys prefer more privatization. But apart from that, I believe uh, uh, fiscal surplus and a, uh, and a stable net debt to GDP, it's a consensus, I would say, with the, maybe Lula and under Bolsonaro. So Lula has delivered that kind of environment in his first term and in, in, in his last administration. He delivered that, but he delivered that because he was able to cater to uh, deliver on many of his promises to his voter base, but he was able to do that because he enjoyed tailwinds, and the tailwinds came from the super cycle of commodity prices and China's growth, but you know, we look around, China's growth is basically faltering. There's a big question mark on you know, what that means for commodity prices. And so it, Lula version 2.0 is not going to have the same tailwinds as the first Lula administration. And if indeed he is elected, how will he be able, or do you think he, you know, how will he deal with the fact that it's a, it's a less favorable environment? He still needs to cater to his supporters, but he's facing much bigger trade-offs. Yeah, under Lula or Bolsonaro, I think in relative terms, Brazil has some tailwinds. Uh, in absolute terms, the whole world suffers if China is faltering, if the U.S. is faltering, of course. Japan, Europe, I mean, the big economies, if they don't do very well, it's hard to see the world doing very well. But in relative terms, uh, when we talk about commodity prices, for example, food, should not be faltering because like you have Ukraine problem and you have uh, climate change 
So uh, Brazil uh, growth in the agro business is, 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 is already happening and will continue to happen, maybe if not so much in prices, but in quantities, in volumes, the, the crop is growing at a rate of 10%, 15% per year and with a lot of technology. Uh, the same on the energy front, uh, there is a lot of growth because private uh, Petrobras sold a lot of mature fuels to, to junior companies. So Brazilian growth of oil and gas is going to be very strong in the next few years and Brazil is a net exporter of energy. So food and energy, uh, Brazil should do well. Maybe iron ore will go down a bit, but for example, pulp and paper, even with China faltering a bit, is more linked to consumption than to investments. So you could see India, for example, and, and China continue to grow its consumption of tissue and packaging. So it's not so clear that this uh, tailwinds on the commodity front is not going to happen. We think it is going to happen in sector by sector. You have to understand uh, and volumes are doing well. So that's why Brazil has a trade surplus today uh, uh, above $80 billion is the record uh, trade surplus. A record FDI. So it's very uh, uh, interesting um, to see that on the on a global situation, even though people don't like Bolsonaro, but there is a lot of money coming to invest in Brazil and there is a big trade surplus and current account surplus. So in uh, fiscal surplus. So the macro numbers are looking OK. It's just that we are coming from two years of a mess with COVID. So there is reason to be optimistic about it. Also, uh, two interesting new wor words from the war with, of Russia is friend-shoring and uh, near-shoring. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> and, and, and Brazil, I think, uh, in the medium to long term, will benefit a lot from that because we are, it's more and more clear that we are a stable democracy, even though people say ah, Bolsonaro wants to be a dictator, blah, blah, blah. But this is all speech from the media. The guy did nothing and just complained about the Supreme Court, but did nothing against them. I mean, words are words. And, and, but uh, in the end, uh, um, Brazil is near Europe and near the US and Brazil is a democracy and Brazil has always been a friend. So <laughs> never been to wars. So in these uh, national security issues of that Europe and the US are facing right now with microchips and food supply and energy supply, I am sure uh, Brazil will be seen much more seriously as, a, as an important partner to, to, to both Europe and in, in, in the US and it was before. So that's why I think FDI uh, should continue to do very well. Uh, multinationals probably are going to prefer to, 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 to grow here than, than to grow uh, in, in maybe other places. And so this is actually a, a good segue to, to something that I find a bit puzzling. You're, you're right. I mean, Brazil has so much potential. It's had potential for a very long time. But something has always held Brazil back. Now, you alluded to the taxation issue earlier. But if I look also at more recent history, industrial production, since the 2015 crisis, since that, that, you know, the last days of Dilma, since that crisis, industrial production in Brazil hasn't quite recovered. And it's really lagged. And what is this mystery? Yeah, what, we have what a problem of, uh, the problem of Brazilian productivity. <laughs> comes from uh, three or four fronts. The, the first one, of course, is education. 
you need to improve education in the country seriously. Né? And in spite of the uh, capex on education in Brazil as a percentage of GDP, is not different from the OECD. It's a matter of uh, ideology and, and, and uh, efficiency of the expense, of, and not really the size of the expense with education we need to fix. The other problem of productivity is taxation. We have a crazy tax system with more than 20 taxes. As even if you want to pay all your taxes, it's hard to do it. Uh, entrepreneurs, when they start a business, it's very complicated to have sales tax. You have uh, taxes on salaries that push people to the informal economy. So people, uh, people cost half if they don't pay taxes on salaries. So that's why people prefer not to be hired officially to be much cheaper to the employer. And that's crazy because then you don't contribute to Social Security. Then it's a problem as a whole. The third was the uh, infrastructure logistics in Brazil that was state controlled and not efficient. So for the productivity improvement, you need a better infrastructure, ports, roads, railways, airports, etc. And that was all in the government hands. That now has all been privatized, mostly privatized. And uh, the state-owned companies in many structuring sectors like electricity, like oil and gas, uh, steel, pulp and paper. I mean, you had a lot of brasses, uh, state-owned companies doing most of the big structuring sectors. And now they have all been privatized, maybe except Petrobras. And, and uh, uh, so with the privatization, with the tax reform, I think you just end up missing, let's say, the education issue, which is not going to be short term or so easy to solve. It was going to take maybe generations to solve. Uh, but with the devalued exchange rate, you fix somehow this problem of the inefficiency in the productivity of the education. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's say, because with this, so the competitiveness of the country um, and a lot of the products we do uh, is very strong. Like we are the lowest cost producer of many commodities, agro commodities, uh, hard commodities, but also like airplanes, we export airplanes, we export cars. Uh, so it's, uh, and the sophistication of the agribusiness is growing a lot. It's a very technological sector these days. And when you go to the interior of the country, you see uh, these booming farms. They come today with a lot of technology, fertilizer. The productivity of the agro sector is growing a lot. It's very uh, important. Um, and again, another competitive advantage we have uh, going forward is that Brazil has a very green uh, uh, energy matrix. We, ha we have a, a, a hydropower, we have a, a eolic, we have solar, we have a, almost 80% of the energy in Brazil is green. <laughs> and we can even export like, a, like this hydrogen green hydrogen brazil can be a power in this because um, we can produce hydrogen from green uh, sources of energy and then export maybe to europe for example and so on so there's a lot of potential in in in, in competitiveness uh, we need just to keep doing the reforms as they have been done one by one and it takes time 
uh, to do all of them, but I think the next big one is the tax reform and the privatization of Petrobras, which could come under Bolsonaro victory. I don't think under Lula they won't do that, I think, uh, but it's the last big state-owned company left, and Banco do Brasil, maybe Caixa Econômica, BNDES, is a, big, a bit of the banking system is still government-owned and, and, and Petrobras, but the rest is now in the hands of the of the the private sector. Even the water sector was a very important one that started to be privatized. Thank you for that talk a bit about the, the equity market, which is <laughs> which is really your focus here. As foreign investors, Brazil has always been interesting, not always delivered on hopes. There is an element, a high degree of volatility, and the volatility comes from the domestic equity market, but also from the exchange rate, which you alluded to. I guess the question, to my mind, as unlike many emerging markets, really, um, the domestic investors is really drives drives the Brazilian equities. Right, this is a country with a deep, big, sophisticated domestic asset management industry. But when interest rates are always or often at levels as we see today, 14% uh, in nominal terms, one of the highest real interest rates in the world, why should investors buy Brazilian equities when they can compound at 14% with zero volatility? And then, you know, because that, I think from a foreign investor perspective, that's really the, the one of the things that perhaps holds back the equity market from reaching its full valuations that you would expect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, but I, I think people won't have uh, 14% uh, in perpetuity. They have just now. <laughs> so equities is, is the in perpetuity, right? So uh, I think that it's very cheap right now exactly because investors moved out of equities to go to fixed income. And now we are at the peak of interest rates and at the low of equity prices. And now we're going to see the opposite. Now the, the convergence to the mean will make interest rates go down because uh, the interest rates will go down because uh, with the current account uh, surplus, with the trade surplus, with the FDI, with the election going, all this should help uh, the inflow of uh, of money, so I think the real could get a bit stronger. That will help inflation too. So I, I think inflationary pressures are over right now, and we are going to see a very significant drop in inflation in the next uh, uh, three, four, five months, and then of course will go up a bit. But I mean, in the next three, four months, we may even see deflation, and and that is going to allow uh, the central bank to start moving back to normal some moment in the next uh, six months is for sure. And that's when equities will perform and people will move back to equities out of fixed income. So I think the, the cycle is now at the, the, the peak of interest rates and at the bottom of equities for local investors. And I think global investors are out of Brazil completely and that's going to be, let's say, the, the sherry on the pie. <laughs> Because uh, when you see the locals may be the first to make this move coming from the, inter the interest rates. But then I think uh, Brazil was much more significant uh, on emerging markets and uh, global portfolios 10, 
15 years ago, and it's now very small, very insignificant. And that will change, I think, in the next 10 years, um, because it's all the things we talked about. In relative terms, Brazil is well positioned, is uh, uh, relatively competitive in, in things that the world needs, the food and energy, uh, is a green country, has a democracy, is near Europe and the US, is a friend to the West. So we are going to see, I think, a very benign uh, environment. Um, I think on, even if Lula or Bolsonaro wins, it's not really, I think, the big issue. Uh, it's the continuity of this process of the reforms, etc. There is nuances, of course, as we talked here, but uh, um, I think the overall uh, interest rate should fall and the real should get stronger under both uh, governments. So in a nutshell, really, if you're thinking as a, as a foreign investor, what the implication of what you're saying is, is actually now is the time, i.e., Interest rates are at their peak, and at the same time, the election uncertainty is at, at its peak, right? Exactly. Well, on that note, Marcelo, thank you very much for your thoughts. It's uh, always a pleasure to hear your views, and uh, thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Clients of Parkview may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.